and welcome to the St. Eminence podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through the best of the blog in 2019, August, August 2019. A little bit late on this one, been busy doing other stuff, but it's time to just revise where we were and do a little bit of spaced repetition learning where we go back and have a quick think about what we read back then. Mm, yeah, maybe revise, revise and re- yeah, revise and renew. So where should we start? Let's kick off with lower GI bleeding. Now, this is an area which I think we, we struggle a little bit with in the ED. Uh, it's been a bit uncertain about the priority for these patients and what exactly we're going to do with them, and in some cases, even who they come under. So we picked up a paper looking at a consensus guideline from the British Society of Gastroenterology and Hepatology on the diagnosis and management of acute lower GI bleeds. Now, I think it's still open access. It's published in GUT. It's worth a look. It's not too long, which is good. And... It's, it's quite useful, actually. There's some, some main findings in there which I think we can take away. And I've got to say, I've actually used some of this since we um, published it. So it's been actually quite helpful in some of the discussions I've had in the ED. There are several things in here which I think are useful. They do use stratification tools to identify those patients who are sick or not sick. They use the shock index. I'm not sure we have to use the shock index in our practice. I think we know what sick patients look like. But the idea of stratifying patients into stable, unstable to guide their further management obviously makes sense. In the stable patients, they use the Oakland score, which is actually designed by one of the authors. It seems perfectly reasonable to use a a, a scoring system to to manage the stable patients because it does actually allow some of them to be sent home. So in fact, the patients who've got no bleeding, they've stopped bleeding rather, and they've got an Oakland score of less than eight points or less than equal to eight points and no reason to stay in. Well, they can go home and I think that's quite helpful actually. It will certainly be good in our practice because ambulatory care for these patients is probably the best thing for them. Anybody with a major bleed should be admitted to hospital for colonoscopy on the next available list. Now that so a bit of a variability depending on where you are. In, in my setting, colonoscopy can actually take place quite quickly, but in other settings, maybe not. For those who are hemodynamically unstable, then CT angiography is the way to go forward. Now, this is certainly something which I've seen come into our practice and, and has been one of the drivers coming out of this paper. The early CT angiography for this group of patients is really good. And I, I've probably said on the podcast before, I'm a little bit in awe of the um interventional radiologists some of the stuff that they do now is quite frankly amazing the interventional radiology element is of course separate to the ct angiography ideally you're going to be doing them in the same center now that's an issue because getting patients to places where those two things can happen is great if you're in the hospital where it does happen i.e., my hospital but if you're in other places there are going to be some interesting transfer and triage decisions around this and certainly the recommendation the guidelines is that these patients should be managed probably in larger centers but you know reality is often different and then there's some other stuff in there about transfusion thresholds at um, transfusing at 70 grams per litre, which is pretty much what we do in other um, settings now, although you might go slightly higher in patients with cardiovascular disease, managing the coagulation and some structural things around how we want to manage the systems where these patients are looked after and having good GI bleed leads in on trusts who should, of course, be liaising with the emergency services to manage them right from the front door. So I actually found that quite a useful little document. I would recommend going have a look at it and sharing it with your colleagues, particularly your surgical colleagues, I think would be helpful. Um, But also good principles of managing GI bleeding, pretty much how we would think about managing trauma bleeding. So there's a lot of similarity there. The next um, paper that we looked at was, I think, a real key paper and something which made me stop and think about a lot of our practice. And that's around the sustainability and climate change in anaesthesia. 
Now, I know we're not anaesthetists, or not all of us are anaesthetists, but anaesthesia has really taken the lead in this, I think. We have to recognise that healthcare is one of the biggest contributors to climate change out there. I think in the UK, if I remember rightly, we're the fourth biggest contributor to climate change, in, in certainly in our region. And that's through a combination of things, travel, use of disposables, um, activity, but also using things like nitrous oxide or using things like um, desflurane and some of the anaesthetic gases really have quite remarkably high levels of um, environmental impact. I mean, I think desflurane is like 3,000 times worse than CO2. And the point is, there are alternatives available. So there's a really, really good paper, and I, I would strongly recommend you have a look at it, by Cliff Shelton and colleagues, Cliff's in the northwest of England actually, looking at how we can modify our behaviours, for example by using alternatives to some of the very high polluting anaesthetic gases to improve the environmental impact of what we do. Now, I think it's going to be difficult because I think healthcare by its nature is not necessarily a particularly environmentally friendly activity. But Getting increased awareness, getting increased understanding, I think is good. Now, for me, what does it mean? It means I've probably tried to reduce things like nitrous oxide use in my department. Um, I'm not using it as much. There are times when we we think it is the best thing that's to be used, so we've not banned it. But when there are alternatives, then I think we should be doing that. So small change you could do next week. Try and reduce your nitrous oxide use in where whichever and wherever setting you happen to be. Then we went on to paper number three, which was looking at the Macintosh versus the McGrath laryngoscopy in pre-hospital care. Obviously, there's been quite a lot of stuff knocking around on this, but there's a paper published in Critical Care Medicine looking at an RCT, which is good because there's been a lot of opinion around this sort of stuff, a lot of opinion, but the actual data to support whether one's better or the other um, is not really out there. And what they found in a study of 514 adult emergency patients undergoing pre-hospital RSI is essentially that both devices are equivalently well suited for use in pre-hospital care. And switching the device following a first um, failed intubation attempt was more successful than a second attempt with the same device, which I think fits with those 30-second RSI drills that you're probably familiar with, that there's no point in doing the same thing more than once. There's a better to change what you do and try something different. And I certainly know that some of the services locally here are carrying things like the McGrath as a second-use instrument, and that seems perfectly reasonable. I think, can we translate that into the emergency department? Uh, yeah, I think we can actually. Certainly it's one of the strategies that we have in our department is to change the laryngoscope often going for a McCoy, but perhaps going for a video laryngoscope, the McGrath, which is available to us in the ED, would be a better idea. Next up, we've got another instalment of Rusty Carroll's series on the aftermath of suffering PTSD following work with the ambulance service. Again, one which I think needs to put into context of the other blogs that he's done that have gone before. But really, this one's quite good about understanding what normal is, about understanding why things happen. And the PTSD series has been really interesting. A lot of people have found it very helpful. We always get comments back on it. And that kind of, I think, is great. You know, it's lovely that people read it, lovely that people find something useful in it. But it kind of worries me as well, kind of worries me that there are people out there like Rusty who are going through some pretty tough times. So I think it's good. Have a read of that and certainly follow it up and maybe revise some of the four previous instalments. And we'll see where Rusty's goes next in a couple of weeks' time. 
Then there was a another journal club paper which I really enjoyed writing on the metabolic and biochemical characteristics of packed red cell transfusions. And this came out of a conversation on Twitter. I was very grateful to Nick Crombie who started this ball rolling really. We have an assumption at the moment, certainly in the management of trauma, that blood is this wonder fluid that we can give to patients and it's so much better than crystalloid and it's so fantastic and it's so brilliant. And you know, there is some evidence to suggest that it is far better than using crystalloid. But when we think about blood, we're not usually thinking about packed red cells in our mind. I mean, that's what we're giving, but we're not usually thinking that. And actually, packed red cells are a long way away from what blood is. So I found a paper on here that um, you should have a look at. If you're, if you're transfusing in the ED, you definitely need to have a look at this, about what the, the, what, what's actually in that bag of packed red cells when you apply it to the patient. And here's an example. Um, so in this study, the average, and this was fairly fresh, but actually arguably fresher than the stuff that we give in the UK. If I told you that, that bag of blood that you're putting up there has a pH of 6.79. Yeah, you heard that right. 6.79. A potassium of 20. Yeah, 20. A base excess of 29, bicarbonate of 11, sodium of 126, a glucose of 24, and a lactate of 9.4. And then you start to think, well, actually, the packed red cells ain't whole blood, is it? I mean, it really isn't. And so transfusion in the ED, particularly massive transfusion, we need to start to think about how we give these things. And that's just the biochemical thing. Once you start thinking about the metabolic components, about the fact that there's very low levels of 2,3-DPG, so it doesn't carry blood um, as well, or rather it doesn't give it up when it gets to the tissues, you start thinking that, you know, this is not the panacea that some people think. And there is a trial going on at the moment in the UK, it's a pre-hospital trial called the refill trial, which is randomizing patients to either getting blood or not getting blood. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what that comes out with. I think a lot of people have just presumed that blood will be better. Um, I think it probably will be, if you want my personal opinion. But how much better and whether or not there are some consequences of its use, then we're not so sure. So I'm going to finish off with the last one of August, which is The Future of Diagnostics with Rick Body. This is a presentation, podcast and video, which you can have a look at. It was done at the St. Emily's Live conference last year. It's always fabulous listening to Rick. A great podcast and video on where diagnostics is going. Now, Rick's a massive expert in this, about how we're going to start using, well, in fact, we're already seeing things like machine learning, artificial intelligence, personalised diagnostics in the ED. And, it, and it's really happening now. And that's going to change the way that we understand diagnostic testing, how we use diagnostic testing. And arguably, it's going to require you, me, everybody else to to start learning different ways to understand the data that's going to come out. And we're going to have to move away, as, as we've said a lot on Satemlins, from this idea of you have or you don't have a condition to probabilities and uncertainty and complexity. And I'm not sure we're all geared up to that yet. I'm not sure everybody understands how to use that kind of data. And the technology is certainly running away from us. So that was August, um, a great month. There's more to come in September. I'll try and get that podcast out soon. But in the interim, have a lovely time and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you.